the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and we have been given our energies to learning Christ in an appropriate way, and Paul has begun by saying that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And to walk according to this new self that has been done in us by the regeneration of the Lord Himself. And so I want to read Ephesians 4. I want to read the two that we've done previously. And then our text, verse 28. Let's begin reading in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood... Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather... He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Our conversation, one with another, is to be according to truth. And that is a truth that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the boundaries of the truth that we are to be communicating. And we're to be communicating that in light of the edification of the body of Christ of which we belong. And this morning we dealt with the fact that for a local New Testament church, the Bible tells us to be angry and yet don't what? Don't sin. He's speaking this, first of all, to a church body. And our tendency is, because this is the way we formerly lived, we lived individualistic and independent, and we viewed everything from our own perspective and our own filter on how it affects me. But this isn't how we are to live now. We have now been organically unioned in the person of Jesus Christ, and that Christ Himself has placed us in local New Testament assemblies of which he views that assembly as a whole or as a unity. And therefore we are members one of another. This local New Testament assembly that we call Faith Memorial Baptist Church is to speak truth to one another. And we as a church body are to be angry Yet we are not to sin. And we concluded this morning by just making this application that really what Paul is saying here in a very indirect fashion is that he is telling us to retain a proper church discipline one among another. You know, brethren, there is a command in Scripture that our Lord gave that if our brother sins against us, here's our Lord's response. Rebuke them. 
And that's a very hard thing, and you have to judge whether or not the attitude, the thing that's behind them, and what they're saying to me, and all this type of thing. God isn't calling us to be, you know, the sin police that strains at a gnat and swallows a camel. If God would note sin in every one of us, we would all fail. But when that conversation becomes something that is part of them, it's being communicated to you in a hurtful fashion, then there is a measured response to that. And that is a rebuke and a correction. And I've had to do that at times. There's also this, that if something comes to our attention, we are to go to that brother or that sister. And if they hear you, you have gained your... You have gained your brother or your sister. And there is a situation where if they don't hear you, then you take two or three with you, you approach this, you know what passage I'm talking about. And then you have the ultimate church discipline, that is punitive church discipline. Love for one another involves discipline. Proverbs tells us that the way of life is the way of discipline. Does God discipline you? He does. If you are without chastisement, then you are not a legitimate son or daughter of God. And folks, if I could just be very plain about this, as a man who was on my ordination council that I love very, very dearly, he preached a message here in our church, and the theme of it was, God uses people. If the invisible Lord wanted to get your attention, He might use your brother or your what? Your sister to do that. <clears throat> and so, God does use people. And so, we are to maintain a proper anger and grief. And probably there's no greater passage that shows that. It's a passage that we did not turn to this morning for sake of time. But in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in the synagogue and a man is there with a withered hand. And our Lord asked the Pharisees, can you do good on the Sabbath day or not? And the Bible says that Jesus looked on them with anger. Now listen to what he says. Being grieved at their hardness of heart. Anger and grief go together. Anger, grief, and mourning go together. And so here in this passage, when we read in verse 26 of Ephesians 4, he is speaking to a local New Testament congregation, be angry, it's a command, and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Be prompt and be scriptural in your handling of that. And then he says, don't give the devil an opportunity. 
And of course, you know the word opportunity there is the word platform or place. And folks, when we don't handle things scripturally, we give the devil a foothold in a congregation to wreck slander against the brethren. You say, does that ever go on? You know that it does. Churches have division, they have strife, they have contention. All of these things are opposite of preserving the spirit and the bond of peace. And so we are to be angry and we are to handle that properly. It's not to be done out of personal vengeance. It's not to be done because we've been hurt about something or we've been offended personally about something. This is for the glory of God that the Bible gives to us. That brings us to our passage for this afternoon in chapter 4 and verse 28. And again, as I mentioned this morning, my aim is not to give to us a theology of work. This is exactly what the passage is telling us. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, that's work, performing with his own hands what is good so that he would have something to share with the one who has need. Again, this is instruction to the church body. And I don't think that he's implying in the church at Ephesus that there were members of that church body who were stealing. Why do I think that? Well, number one, stealing is a church disciplinary offense. Is it not? But I do think that what he is saying there is that he is using something that would be very common in their culture It's common in ours, but not according to the same circumstance. And that is this, that in Paul's day, slaves were known for thievery. They were known for stealing. And if you just think about it just for a little bit, I'm sure not all slaves were provided for appropriately. I'm sure that slaves were taken advantage of. If you look in the New Testament and Roman, Roman form of slavery. But it was just common knowledge that if there's a slave, then there's the possibility of thievery. So, and in the church at Rome, there were both masters and slaves, right? Here we are in this congregation, and we're meeting together. <clears throat> so I think the point of the passage is, is... That is your former manner of life. As a slave, you would be tempted to what? To steal. And it was part of the kind of the culture of that day. I think the point of the passage is this that we must labor. We must labor. In other words, we must work, labor, to provide sufficient means for ourselves with the knowledge of sharing our material needs with those in the congregation that have need. Does everybody see that? You've got, don't steal, but rather you must labor, working with your own hands what is good, so that you will be able to share 
within that congregation to those who have genuine need. So while we have a contrast between our former manner of life that is stealing to gain, right? That's why you steal. Stealing to gain versus the new manner of life in Christ and that is laboring to give. Is that not a difference in lifestyle? Stealing to gain versus laboring to to give. Is that not as black and white, night and day with the way of the world? I heard a preacher say one time, he preached a series on work. And I heard him say this, and I think in general he is on target with this. And I want to give it to you because it made a tremendous impact in my life. Although I've not taken what I'm about to say and really ransacked the scripture to see if there's any exceptions to this. But this is what he said, and I do think that in general it is for us. There are only two legitimate means of acquiring. One, he called the law of labor or the law of work. We go out, we work, we expect a what? A paycheck. We expect remuneration for our labors. That would be one legitimate scriptural way to acquire. I don't think any of us would have any problems with that one. The second legitimate means is the law of love. In other words, could I take of my material sufficiency and give it to someone who has need? as an act of love. Could I do that? Would that person in receiving that from me gain? They would. They would acquire. So what this preacher said, and I do think it has scriptural backing, is that there are two legitimate means of acquiring in this life. The law of labor and the law of love. Anything outside of those two means are illegitimate gain. So let's just put that to the test. How about the lottery? If I win the lottery, do I gain? Yes. All right. Did I gain it because I labored for it? The answer to that is no. no. Did I gain it because the government loves me so much <laughs> that they're giving it to me as an act of charity? The answer to that is what? No. no. That would be an illegitimate means. Outside of the fact of the issue that if you are playing the lottery, it's probably because you're greedy. And that's an issue, isn't it? If I would say to you, well, I'm going to go gamble. I'm going to get a deck of cards. We're going to, we're going to gamble. We're going to play. <clears throat> and again, I'm not necessarily talking about tokens or 
fake money or anything like that, okay? I'm, I mean, there's real money on the table. <clears throat> and I win it all. Did I gain it? Yes. Did I labor for it? No. no. Did they do it because they love me? No. no. It would be an illegitimate form of gain. And I do think in the Scripture that those two laws or those two principles are valid as we are evaluating things in our life. One thing we know for sure from this text, stealing is forbidden. Can we agree with that? Let him that steal, what? Don't steal any longer. What is stealing? Stealing is a violation of another man's stewardship. And we learned on Wednesday night that God, through the prophet Nathan, told David that he stole another man's wife. Did he steal her? He did. He violated another man's stewardship. That man's stewardship was over his wife. And David stole that stewardship. And folks, what we learn from this passage is this, that working removes the temptation to live off other people. Now think about that just for a second. If I'm working with my own hands, providing my necessities, does that lessen my temptation to steal? It does. Because folks, what happens is, when you read some of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think it's in the prophet Ezekiel that he says that this is one of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin. Fullness of bread. Ease of life. And folks, when there's a fullness of bread and there's a lot of free time on your hands, do you know what lost people do? They think of ways to sin. They think of ways to sin. We live in a nation that we can honestly say it has fullness of bread. And I'm thankful for that. Aren't you? <clears throat> we live in a nation where there's a lot of available playtime. And I'm thankful for that, aren't you? I mean, I, I'm not on a farm raising crops to feed my family, working from sunup to sundown, collapsing in a bed, getting up the next day, working hard, just so I could barely feed my family for the year. But there's many in the world that do that. And if you're doing that, you, you don't have time to go play ping pong. And I'm not against ping pong. 
Everybody, everybody get what I'm saying? Why, why is that? Because you've got to work to put food on the table. So when there's ease and there's fullness of bread, then what mankind does is that they begin to devise the depths and the imaginations of sin. And folks, I think it's clear that our nation is not less sinful than what it was 100 years ago. It's more sinful. Labor removes the temptation to live off others. And I want you to take your Bible. We're going to go to two passages. Both are in Thessalonians. But I want you to go to 2 Thessalonians because here in this church, they actually had a problem with this within their congregation. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, if I ever get there, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you'll recall that what they had was a situation in that congregation where they were so enamored with the second coming of Christ that they were so fixated on this and they knew, they just knew that it was going to happen in their lifetime. That they stopped working. I mean, why work and do all that type of mundane activity if tomorrow Christ is going to appear? And what happened is, is that they began to ask the church membership to feed them. They didn't have food. Why? They weren't weren't working, and so they didn't have food, and so they went to their brothers and sisters and said, I have a need. Are we as a church body commanded to meet necessities in our membership? Yes, we are. And Paul warned them in 1 Thessalonians about this. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Does everybody see that? Now folks, this is Paul's election to do this. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's doing this voluntarily so that he's not putting a stumbling block in front of the gospel. That he couldn't be accused of just preaching for money. But Paul also did it to be an example to the church body. And he says in verse 9, not because we do not have the right to this. Did they have the right to expect material provisions for spiritual feeding? The answer to that is yes. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you, so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, this command. 
If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Did everybody see that? Do you think that's harsh? You know, there's something about man's hunger that will drive him to work. Solomon says that people only go to work to feed their mouth. If anyone is unwilling to work, and that really is the key, it's not they can't find a job, it's not that they're not looking out there for something, they're unwilling to do this. Then the church should not provide their necessities. And Paul says in verse 11, For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. And folks, when a man or a woman is not engaged in scriptural labor, what they have a tendency to do is to occupy themselves in the lives of other people. We call them a busybody, or my dad used to call it Nosy's neighbors. They've got a nose, not for their own business, but for your business. Why is that? Because they're not working themselves. Now look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 12. Now such persons, people who are doing no work at all, acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own what? Okay. To work in quiet fashion means not to be a busybody. Go to work, do your what? Do your work, do your job, and to not occupy yourself with eating other people's bread, but eat whose? Your own bread. Go to work, earn a paycheck, go to the grocery store, (laughs) put down your money, get whatever you think you ought to eat. My advice is not Pop-Tarts. Okay, put down your money for some good food, take it home, don't make a big deal about it, sit it on the table, eat your bread. What do you think about that? Folks, what I just described to you is godliness. Now I said it that way because We've got this vision of godliness that is so supernatural and so out of this world that surely the mundane, day-by-day, working at your job, bringing home bread, cooking it and eating it, surely that can't be godly. Godliness has to be something way more exciting than this. You know what godliness is? Speaking the truth in love. 
You know what godliness is? Being angry at the right things. You know what godliness is? Working. Working. And folks, we're to work with our own hands. Now, I don't think what he means by that is if you are a Christian, using today's language, if you are a Christian, you must do blue-collar work. Do you think that? I don't think that. But he is saying this. We must be willing to work at things that the world considers dishonorable. For instance, if I would say to you, my dream in life, I'm 18, my dream in life, I want to be a waste manager operator. We call that garbage collecting. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, that's not a demeaning job. All work that is good work is honorable in the sight of our Lord. Do we understand that? Getting a broom and being paid to sweep the parking lot is godliness. It's honorable. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I grew up in an America that looked down on blue-collar workers and looked up on white-collar, educated, mindful, mental type of work. The Bible knows nothing of that. I've given this story before, and this person is with the Lord, and if I gave the person's name, you probably know who it is, but... I had a deacon one time and he worked at Nabisco. It's not Nabisco now, but he worked out there at that plant. And he operated a little mobile crane where he went around and he put little slats in boxes, lifting them up, take it over there, go up and get another slat, bring it over there, load a truck, put it on the truck. And... He was a very wise man. He was a blessing to me. And one time he and I were alone in my study and we were talking about a particular subject and he looked at me and he busted out crying and he said, I'm, I'm just an uneducated and he just went on about all this. And I don't do this very often. I think this is the only time I've done this. I went up and got right in his face. And I put my hands on his face. This is an adult grown man older than I am. And I got right at his nose and I said, Don't you ever talk like that again. His work was honorable. Can you say amen to that? His work, if he did that in a godly fashion is just as honorable in God as my work is if I'm doing it godly. 
The Bible gives honor to work. And I want to remind you that work is not a result of the fall. The sweat is a result of the fall. But when God put Adam in the Garden of Eden, He gave him a job. And folks, when we're in the new heavens and new earth, guess what you're going to have? You're not going to be on a cloud with a harp. Just floating around forever in rest and relaxation. We're going to work. The difference is it won't be a burden anymore. It will be pure delight. Labor in this passage means to exert yourself in an activity. To exert yourself. To make an effort in something. And sometimes it will be exhausting effort. Paul preached during the day and had to work when? Do you think he got tired? He did. Work under the sun is exhausting. It takes effort. But folks, our effort is to be engaged in what is good and beneficial and useful. Note what it says as you go back to Ephesians 4. When it says, He must labor performing with His own hands what is good. Does everybody see that? There is vocations and there are work, there is work that is not good. Let me give you just a couple of extreme examples. I get saved and my work is that I deal in drugs. Would you say to me, Pastor, keep dealing in drugs. It makes you a lot of good money and provides your necessities and you give a lot. Would you advise me to do that? Would you advise and say, you know what, here's a good job, be a drug dealer. I hope you would say no. If I were to say to you, as this is a real life example, many, many years ago, a man that I love very much, he led his brother to Christ. His brother's vocation was to drive a beer truck. He drove a Budweiser beer truck and he went around from grocery store to grocery store, loaded up the shelves with beer, alcohol. Would you say, oh, that's a great job. That is really beneficial to the community. Would you say that? No, you would not say that at all. And when he got saved... Uh, this man that I love, his brother, and I got together and we just said, now, 
you know, um, this, this is real issue. And you know what the man said to me? You're right. I said, why don't all three of us get together and pray and ask God to give you another job? To give you a labor that is good. And he said, amen. Do you know that that man had a job within 10 days? There is labor out there that a Christian should never do, let alone a lost person should do. We are to labor with our own hands that which is good. If I were to say to you, I want to be a bartender. I want to go to bartender school. I want to work in as a bartender. Would you say amen to that? Would you tell your child, sure, go for it. How many of you would say that? Hopefully none of you. Why? Not good. Right? It doesn't have the quality of providing something beneficial in this lost world. You're actually facilitating what's what? What's evil. And folks, today in our culture... Work is scorned. Work is scorned as undesirable. You might have heard this euphemism, thank God it's Friday. When a person says that, what are they saying? Can't wait not to work so that I can entertain myself. In our culture, work is scorned. Our government scorns work. It pays people not to work. I'm not talking about people who have real need. There are people out there who have real need. But there are a lot of people on these payrolls, and the government has said so. They don't have a need. Work is scorned. Play and rest are exalted. Would you agree with that statement? When you look at a commercial on a television and it shows the happy young people playing. You see a college advertisement. You'll never, never, too broad a word, almost always you will not see, come to my college and there's a picture of a guy with his head like this buried in his books. You'll see football games. Nothing wrong with football games. You'll see people laughing. People at the beach. People having fun. And I remember one time, I was, we, it was just bombarded. and It just kind of got under my skin. And I said, do they ever show anybody working? And the answer is, no. 
And so now, today, we have a generation, and it's well written of in worldly newspapers and articles, they can't get the young people to go to work. And you go to places, and what you see are 65-year-olds, 68-year-olds, 70-year-olds that are working. And I'm not against that, but what I'm saying is, where's the young people? And I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but they're probably at home playing with their phone. Work is honorable. I almost want to say repeat after me, but I'm not going to do so. (laughs) And folks, what has happened is we need to reverse this. And it has to start in God's house. We have to make work honorable and make play and rest secondary. Not primary. Most Christians don't view work as godly. But it is. It's a well-known fact that in the Puritan era that one of the things the Puritan recovered was that all work was honorable. Now folks, why do we work? Well, I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And there's other places that we could go with this. But my goal wasn't to give a theology of work. but to exhort you as Paul is exhorting us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to do what? Love Love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Now note verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your own hands just as we commanded you. Does everybody see that? What does the Lord want for us? Here's an ambition for you. Lead a quiet life. Folks, a peaceful life is a gift. You ought to relish it while you have it. For man is like sparks going up in the fire. There's just trouble all around us. To attend to your own business. Isn't it easy to work and critique your boss's business? What do you think? 
Isn't it easy to say, I know exactly what my boss ought to do, and you don't do your own? Yes or no? Wouldn't work be a lot nicer if people just did their own business? <laughs> and I've had people tell me, I've had people tell me this in the ministry. I've had, I had a young man in mind right now, and he used to tell me, I have no idea why you're doing what you're doing. And I don't think it's right. And he became pastor. And he said, now I know why you're doing what you're doing. <laughs> so folks, as far as church is concerned, if, you're a, if, you, if you teach a Sunday school class, teach it with all your might. If I'm pastoring, pastor with all my might. And don't meddle in other people's business. And it, the internet makes it almost impossible not to do that. If you buy something in Amazon, it wants to know whether you think they did their business right or not. And I never answer those. I say, you delivered the product? Here it is. I got it. It's all good. Because I don't know enough to critique how they do their business. Do you? And you better say no, because that is correct. And not only that, we are to work with our own hands as Paul and the apostles commanded them. And folks, he commanded them to do this from the Lord. This isn't Paul's random idea. This is from our risen Lord. This is what it means to be godly. And he says in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, chapter 4, he says, so that, here's the reason why we do these three things, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Lost people may meddle in other people's affairs, but they know believers shouldn't. They know that if you're a Christian, then you ought to be diligent in your work. Even though they're not diligent in theirs. They know this inherently. And folks, when we give ourselves to this type of ambition, this is godliness, when we give ourselves to lead a quiet life, to work with our own hands, to give attention to our own affairs. It removes the bad testimony from those that are outside of the church. And folks, regardless of how dark our culture is, I can tell you that our culture really leads for joy if they find a diligent Christian worker. Now they'll fire him for no reason at all just to, just to uphold whatever the spirit of this age is. But they'll recognize this person is a diligent worker. 
and that we be not in any need. Folks, what are our basic needs? There are three of them. Food. Is that a basic necessity? It is. Clothing. Is that a basic necessity? It is. Do you know what the third one is? Giving. Look at the passage in Ephesians. What does the Ephesian passage say? Let him that still, still no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with one who has need. Everybody see that? If that's not unlike the world, I don't know what is. Our basic fundamental needs is food, clothing, and giving. So what does labor do for us? And I'm concluding. Labor has an end. It is to provide our necessary means. Whether it's blue collar, white collar, gray collar whatever you want. All work is honorable. Not only does labor have an end to provide our necessary needs, but labor also provides the means to build up others within the congregation to supply their need. And 1 John speaks of this. If you want a reference, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, if a brother or sister has need... And you say, brother, I'll pray for you. How dwells the love of God in you? We're supposed to supply the need, right? So our first responsibility and manifestation of godliness is taking care of our need and of the body of Christ of which we are members in. That's our first responsibility. Our first responsibility is here. Sometimes people will call me on the phone and say that they have needs. And my first question to them is almost this. What local church do you attend? Why would I ask that? Because if they're a member of a local church, that local church has a biblical responsibility to evaluate, and if the need is real, to supply the what? To supply the need. That's why. 
Now folks, when we're talking about our needs, our needs can be individual. Food, clothing, giving. But our needs can also be corporate. The needs of a church of which we are members could be the general budget. Yes? Yes. It could be missionary outreach, right? It could be a building program. Now you can be build buildings for the fun of it. We've never done that here. <laughs> but could that be a corporate need? Well, what about Exodus? Did they give money for the tabernacle in the wilderness? Yes or no? Yeah, they did. Or Second Chron, not Second Chronicles, but Second Samuel, where David stored up for the temple that he was building, and then he turned to the elders, the leaders of that nation, and said, "Will you give also?" And they what? They gave to that God-given need, and we could multiply. Genuine need that God gives to us for ourselves, our family, our church. Now folks, when we do this, we're showing love to each other. It is loving to this body for you to work. You agree with that? So if you're unwilling to work, you're not loving the body, right? Because the body has to supply your what? Your need. And we are under divine obligation to love one another. Now I want to close by giving an example for our parents. Parents, work is godly. So teach your children to work. Work is godly. You agree with that? Then you must train up your child in the way that he should go. And part of that guidance is teaching them to work. Parents today have a fear of asking their children to work. And I don't know why. I think it's because they fear the child. Because you know what? Children don't want to work. (laughs) I didn't. You may be more spiritual than I was. But you probably don't either. I remember my dad telling me that I had to spend a summer sitting in the front yard pulling weeds, that he didn't want to see a single weed in that front yard by the end of the summer. I spent my whole summer every day, four hours a day, in the front yard, digging weeds out of the front yard so he could plant grass. You say, I don't like that. It wasn't an issue whether I liked it or not. (laughs) And whether it was just or unjust, it didn't matter. But it taught me something. taught me something. 
Work is godly, so teach your children to work. And in all your instruction, don't treat them as slaves. Everybody, everybody hear what I'm saying? Sometimes, sometimes it's like, well, my children are here, <clears throat> you know, they're my employee number one. <laughs> so they get to do everything I don't want to do. Okay. Don't treat the child as a slave. You wouldn't want to be treated that way. But teach them to work in the nurture of the Lord. Of the Lord. And folks, we do that by teaching by example. If your habitual stance is to tell your children to go do something while you're drinking iced tea and watching the football game, it's probably not going to go over well. Nothing wrong with drinking iced tea. (laughs) Nothing wrong with watching a football game. Nothing wrong with occasionally. That does happen. But they need to see mom and dad doing what? Working. And folks, that work can be blue-collar. Acts chapter 6, the apostles said, it is not profitable for us to leave the Word of God to serve tables. Serving tables is a blue-collar activity. And it's honorable. Amen? And it is honorable not to serve tables and just serve the Scripture, the Word of God to God's people. What I'm doing is honorable. What you're doing is honorable. My vocation isn't some esoteric cloud in the sky more honorable than what you're doing. We've all been gifted for the edification of this local New Testament body for the glory of God. Let's pray.